Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everyone. I hope that you're all doing well. This week, we have two stories that I know you will enjoy. They embody the spirit of Halloween and they'll get you right into spooky season. So let's begin as we drift further into Mr. Creep's mind. I'm a park ranger in the Great Smokies. I think this thing came from hell. Written by Horror Writer 1717. I've lived in East Tennessee for most of my life. Growing up, I would hear old wives' tales and urban legends about strange creatures that roam the forest. For the longest time, I thought what every other kid thought, that they were stories told to scare kids away from dangerous places so they wouldn't fall into a ravine or get lost in the massive wilderness. I never thought any of it was more than made-up stories. That's not to say that I didn't spend my share of time with covers pulled tightly over my head when the wind blew the branches against my window that happened to face the woods. As I grew older, I found myself gravitating towards these stories of strange creatures in the woods. That curiosity is what started me to investigate such things in my spare time. And people around here seem to be obsessed with Bigfoot, as if he's some local celebrity. They tend to ignore or downplay other cryptids. I don't know why. With the hundreds of thousands of acres of unexplored and barely explored forest, it seems there's a lot of space for anything that feels like making its home there could be left in relative peace. For me, I'm more of a fan of Dogman, unofficially of course. You see, once I graduated high school, my only goal was to become a park ranger. Where else could you go to work and be surrounded by such glorious nature, even at its most dangerous? There are literally dozens of stories that I could tell. But the one that sticks with me is the hikers from a couple of years ago. I remember it was early October. I always make the hike up to Klingerman's Dome several times during autumn. Gazing out over the canvas of trees spouting a myriad of colors. Looking every bit like nature's fireworks show reinforced that I made the right career choice. I was on patrol when a call came in to go to the cabins near Fontana Lake. I got the address and I headed south, crossing into North Carolina. When I got there, I was met by a woman who said her husband, son, and brother-in-law had gone to the lake fishing and hadn't come back. I got the information that I needed about their general description, names, and description of the truck and boat, and then headed out to search for them. She said that they were heading up to Wolf Creek. I called it in and told the station that I would be driving down to Flat Branch to see if they went in the river there. 
It was a decent drive to get there, but then again, it was a decent drive to get pretty much anywhere out in the backwoods of these Smoky Mountains. When I got there, I found three trucks parked off to the side. Two of them had empty boat trailers. I checked the description the wife had given me and it matched one of the trucks. I had a beginning point for my search. I walked up to the water and I looked both ways, hoping to look out and find them coming in from a hard day's fishing. No such luck. There was a house nearby, so I walked over and asked if they had seen my quarry. The man said that he had been out fishing himself yesterday and recalled seeing a boat like the one that I described, with two men and a boy in it. I asked him which direction they were going and he said west. I asked if he had a boat and could take me up to Wolf Creek. The man's demeanor changed from friendly to deadly quiet. He agreed to take me across the river but not all the way to Wolf Creek. I accepted what I could get. After a quick jog back to my truck to get my backpack, he ferried me across and quickly left. It was a mile or so to the rural campsite I suspected that they had camped at. I started walking along the edge of the river, keeping an eye out for them. It wasn't long until I spotted a boat sitting on the shore. I approached the boat and it seemed to be the right one. Everything about this missing persons report seemed just like somebody who had stayed out later than they had planned. It was a little too easy. I would be very happy to find them sitting by a campfire about to pack up and go home. It didn't take long to hike to the campsite, but when I got there, things stopped being easy. There were only two tents set up, but they both looked like someone or something had torn into them. I checked inside each one and found sleeping bags and general camp equipment strewn about. I did my best not to disturb anything. When I came to the second tent, I found something more disturbing. This tent was also in disarray, but as I looked, I saw distinct drops of red. There was a notebook sitting near one of these sleeping bags. I picked it up and paged through it. October 3rd We headed out for our annual fishing trip this morning. Mom wasn't too happy, but we told her that we would be back tomorrow. The drive to the boat launch was kind of long, but we filled the time talking about all the fish that we were going to catch, and eventually telling stories about the area. And Dad tried to scare me with the story about a cryptid that lives close by, but I knew that he was just yanking my chain. We got to the boat launch and headed out into the water without too much of a hitch. Uncle Roger nearly fell in trying to get the boat undone. He didn't find it nearly as funny as Dad and I did. Once we were out on the lake and had our lines in the water, he seemed to settle in and enjoy himself. After a few beers, he was laughing about it with us. We caught a couple of fish, but they were too small and we had to throw them back. Dad said that he had heard about a good spot up by Wolf Creek. We had better luck when we got there. Uncle Roger caught three largemouth bass and I caught two. Dad had a big one on his line but it got loose before we could net it. It was starting to get dark so Dad said that we should go to one of the rural campsites 
We pulled the boat up to shore and tied it to a large tree, then took our gear and hiked to the campsite. There wasn't anybody else there, which Dad said was odd, because the site is normally full. We unpacked and set up our tents, and Dad got a fire going while Uncle Roger cleaned the fish. We ate and laughed and talked until it was dark and we turned in for the evening. Dad said there was a better fishing spot further west, and he wanted to go there early in the morning before we headed back to the cabin. It's the middle of the night and Dad is playing a joke on me. I woke up for some reason and he wasn't in the tent. I could hear rustling outside along with something pawing the ground and snorting. I knew that it was Dad trying to scare me. He and Uncle Roger had been telling cryptid stories while we ate supper. I told them that they weren't going to scare me like they did last year. They just looked at each other and smiled. I knew they would have something up their sleeves. I didn't bother to turn the light on or go out and check. I knew they would just run away and hide, pretending to be a creature that I had scared off. Then in the morning they would ask each other if they heard the commotion, hoping to scare me. I wasn't falling for it. One thing you learn from having a prankster for a dad is not to believe anything you see, or in this case, hear. I rolled over and tried to go back to sleep, but dad was making it tough. He was stomping and growling around so loud, trying to get my attention, but I wasn't having it. When I got up in the morning and went outside, the camp had been destroyed. Uncle Roger asked if I had heard anything last night, and I played along saying that I had heard some creature outside our tent, but I was too scared to go out and check. He made a good show of searching for Dad and seeming genuinely concerned. I was just waiting for Dad to get tired of the game and come back to the campsite. As the morning wore on, though, Uncle Roger started talking about going to look for him. I wanted to tell him that I hadn't fallen for their little prank, but I didn't want to spoil their fun. When noon rolled around and Dad wasn't back, I actually started to get worried. Maybe he had fallen and hit his head on a rock or something. Uncle Roger was beside himself. He told me that he would have already gone looking for Dad, but didn't want to leave me alone at the camp. We decided to go look for him. Uncle Roger found what looked like a scuffle as we headed off in that direction. He told me to stay right with him as we struggled through the forest looking for any sign of Dad. I was starting to doubt that this was a prank. I was getting worried about Dad. The further we went, the more I realized how wrong I had been. I wanted Dad to jump out and scare me just so that I would know he was okay. We walked around for hours searching for him, but we couldn't find him. I was beyond worried now, and I could tell Roger was too, but he didn't let it on. He just kept saying Dad was probably already back at the campsite now. When the sun had started sinking low in the sky, we gave up our search and headed back. Twice we lost our way and had to double back to get to the site. There weren't many trails out here, at least not that people had made. When we got back to the site, we ran to our tent, hoping that he would be there, but he wasn't. 
and we ate a quick supper and turned in for the night. Uncle Roger promised me that he would wake me up when Dad came back. October 4th. Uncle Roger never woke me. Dad didn't come back. I said that we should call for help, but he told me that Dad had the only phone. We were trying to decide what to do when we heard a rustling in the woods and all the birds went silent. We looked around for the source of the noise and unfortunately we found it. There was a thing coming towards us. It stood on its back hind legs and its body made these loud cracking sounds, like its bones were snapping into or out of place and echoing all around us. This thing was huge. I literally froze. My body refused to move as this horror came towards us. Uncle Roger grabbed me and yanked me over behind his tent. We tried to hide but this thing saw us and let out a massive roar. We were so close that I could see blood on its claws and teeth. I prayed it wasn't dad's. What, what do we do? I said. He put his finger up to his lips. It looked over at us and then went into my tent like it was searching for something. Come on, Uncle Roger said. We snuck away from the monster as quietly as possible. We slipped down the bank of the creek and walked downstream in the river. Where are we going? I whispered. There's a bridge downstream. If we're quiet enough and that thing loses our scent, we could hide under it and hope that it goes away. I focused on walking as quietly as I could through the water. The sound of the creek was loud, so I was hopeful that it wouldn't see or hear us. It seemed like forever until we made it to the bridge. It was a small wooden bridge that spanned the creek, allowing hikers to pass over. There wasn't a lot of cover, so we tried to wedge ourselves into the shadows at the furthest end of it. Time slowed to a standstill as I sat there on the uncomfortable rock, shivering. Neither of us had our jackets on and the sun had gone down, taking the warm air with it. I started to doze when I felt a nudge. I looked up and Uncle Roger was motioning me to be quiet. I was about to ask why when I heard the creak of a board in the bridge right above my head. It wasn't a steady walk of a hiker going down the trail. It was a slow, deliberate step of somebody sneaking or hunting. I listened in mortal terror as the board slowly gave way to the weight of whatever was on it. One slow step at a time. As if I wasn't cold enough, my teeth began to chatter with fear. It couldn't have been very loud. Uncle Roger barely heard it and went into silent convulsions motioning me to stop. I bit my tongue to keep the noise down and continued to listen. Only there was nothing to listen to. Whatever was on the bridge had stopped moving. It was as if it was listening to be sure that it had heard something. I strained my ears to listen for any movement. When I did, I heard sniffling. The thing was trying to catch her scent. For the first time, I noticed there was a slight breeze blowing. It was a blowing in the same direction the water flowed, but I had no idea which side of the bridge the creature was on. The wind could be our savior or our doom. 
Another slow footstep sounded like a bomb going off as the board creaked beneath it. For the briefest of moments, it seemed like it was moving away toward the far end of the bridge. I hoped and prayed that was the case as another footstep sounded and then another. I breathed a silent sigh of relief as I heard it step off the edge of the bridge and onto the trail. My relief was short-lived though as I saw a phase peek around the corner and peer under the bridge. I froze in terror as this thing that looked like a giant monstrous dog walking on its hind legs snuck around the corner of the bridge and dipped its feet into the water. It sniffed the air and poked its snout into the shadows under the far side of the bridge. Coming up empty, it turned its focus to the side of the bridge where we were hiding. Daylight had faded to dusk. There was precious little light to see by. That was our only saving grace. The shadows were darker here, making us nearly invisible. But that was rapidly ending as the beast approached. My mind was vapor-locked. I had no clue what to do. Running would just give us away more quickly. It was looking like our only choice was to die. At that moment, I was 100% sure of what had happened to Dad. Hot tears streamed down my cheeks at the thought of my father being torn apart by this monster. As I prepared to die, I felt Uncle Roger lean over a little closer. He was right in front of me and it was hard to see the monster. I saw his hand move down to the ground and pick up a stone the size of his fist. I knew right away what was happening. He was trying to shield me. He would offer himself as a sacrifice to protect me. My tears redoubled and making it hard to see. The monster was almost on us. It hadn't acted like it knew that we were there, but at this point it didn't matter. A few more steps and all doubt would be removed. I saw it reach out with its terrible claws that nearly touched Uncle Roger's nose. This was it. But suddenly it stopped. It lifted its head and sniffed the air. I saw the hair on its back bristle and then in a heartbeat it disappeared. Uncle Roger slowly stood and looked around. I tried to do the same but my legs didn't want to cooperate. I dislodged some stones as I stood making a little noise and causing Uncle Roger to hiss at me. We stood silently waiting for that thing to come jumping out at us from whatever hiding place it was in. But after a few minutes, I began to hope that we were okay. Uncle Roger led the way back to our camp. He said that we should change into dry clothes and get a little rest. It felt so good to be warm again. I snuggled up in my sleeping bag and wrote this message so that if we don't make it, somebody would know what happened. I hope my dad was as lucky as we were. I read through the entire message and then went back and reread the description of the creature. If it was what I thought it was, it was amazing that they were still alive. Knowing what I was tracking put me on guard and made me wonder if I was being hunted right now. If it had intentionally left things lay so it could ensnare another victim. I didn't have much hope of finding them, but I would look anyway.
I started with the tracks in the camp, specifically the ones around the tents. It seemed like the boy and his uncle had gone towards the creek. The creature's tracks went that way too. It followed them to the creek where its tracks seemed to wander around as if it had lost its prey. I saw where they went into the water to throw off its scent. Smart move. I followed the meandering tracks until they came to a small bridge that forded the creek. The tracks went over the bridge and then through the creek and underneath it. That didn't make sense unless they were hiding in the shadows. The creature's tracks made a sudden turn and went toward the trail then up a hill, almost like something had spooked it. If it was what I thought, I couldn't imagine anything spooking it. I followed the creature's tracks up over the hill, and then they doubled back and followed the creek from the top of the ridge. I noticed there was a good view of the creek. It didn't make sense to be going this way until I found myself back in the camp. It had put them right back in its sights. I was confused for a while. I couldn't find a second set of tracks where they left the second time. If the creature had slaughtered them at the campsite, there would be a lot more blood, but there wasn't. In fact, I couldn't find any proof that they had come back. And then it hit me. I went back and looked at the tracks again. There were a few here and there that were doubled. The boy and his uncle must have come back here after the bridge, then left again the same way as before. The disturbing thing was I still hadn't seen any tracks of the father. I circled around the camp slowly, looking for anything that I might have missed. Eventually, I found a set of adult tracks, leaving a tent and going to the edge of the tree line. They stopped facing a tree. There was a dark spot on the bark a couple of feet up. This had the earmarks of a late night bathroom break. But the confusing thing was the tracks never returned. Like he had stopped here to relieve himself and then just disappeared. I searched all around the tree when I made a startling discovery. There were flecks of blood farther up on the bark. I circled out further from the tree and found my terrible discovery. Tracks of the creature with the drops of blood beside it. My marrow turned to ice at the implication. I followed my new trail hoping that I wouldn't find what my mind was telling me I would. I tried to report to the station on my radio but strangely all I got in response was static. I knew there were areas out here that didn't get good reception but I didn't think that this was one of them, right near a posted campsite, just off of a trail. I decided I would try again later. I adjusted my backpack and started off after my prey. As a precaution, I pulled on my sidearm and made sure that it was loaded. It seemed like a silly thing to do, but when dealing with a dangerous alpha predator, it's best to make sure that you're ready to shoot. My hand shook a little when I put my gun back in its holster. I knew this was dangerous and I knew that it would be just as easy to go back to the station and let search and rescue take care of it. But I also knew that there was a man who was in the clutches of a deadly creature and that he was losing blood. I didn't have time to waste. I followed the tracks as best as I could through the brush and fallen trees. 
I would lose the trail sometimes only to pick it up again when I found a few more drops of blood. The tracks ran along the base of the hill heading west until it came to a stop. It was right in front of a mountain. I looked all around but the trail had disappeared. Finally in desperation I looked up and noticed a cave part way up the mountain. I thought about going up there but was unsure. That could be the home of this creature or it could be the home of a dozen other animals. None of which would appreciate me storming into their living room unannounced. After another thorough look around the area, I decided it was likely where my prey had gone. The clouds had been rolling in all day and now decided that they were done playing nice. The rain began slowly enough but was soon coming down in sheets. The cave was looking better as I covered my eyes and tried to see where I was going. It was raining so hard that I couldn't see the cave anymore. I just kept pressing forward in what I hoped was a straight line, over fallen trees, through brush, and rapidly rising streams. I finally looked up and saw that I was at the base of the mountain. My direction was off by a little bit and I had ended up a few dozen yards to the right of it, but it was no matter. I started climbing the mountain, being extra careful of my footing, especially in this torrential downpour. After a few slips, including one that had me nearly tumbling off the mountain, I made it to the mouth of the cave. I slipped inside and enjoyed a moment without water dumping on me. I looked down and the water dripping off of me made a little puddle like I had brought my own rain cloud into the cave with me. I shook off as much water as I could as quietly as possible. The rain pouring down outside made loud splashes inside the cave. It would have been difficult to hear anything else, but I still wanted to be sure. I unbuckled and sat the backpack down just inside the mouth of the cave. The rain had made it gain extra weight and I didn't know if I would have to move fast. I opened my pack and got on my water bottle and drank it. It had been a while since I had drank anything and I chugged half of it down. I closed it and saved the other half for if I got out of here alive. With that happy thought rattling around in my brain, I stole the water bottle back in my pack and pulled out a small flashlight. I turned it on while pointing it at the floor. The bright beam illuminated the cave. It was large as caves go. I could stand up in it and not reach the ceiling. There were many boulders and stones and it wasn't a smooth floor. The walls were rough and there weren't any cave drawings in here. I walked slowly, each step felt like I was closer to my doom. I pulled on my gun and held it tightly. The sense of foreboding thickened the air. Two thoughts impressed themselves on me. Firing a gun in here would probably deafen me, and the stench was horrific. It smelled like an open sewer in the middle of August. As I crept deeper into the cave, the sounds of the rain diminished, replaced by an eerie silence. I could hear the step of my feet, my breathing, and my heart pounding. As I was seriously considering turning around and leaving, when I saw something ahead of me move, it was big, at least as big as me. I dove against the wall for some cover, forgetting that I was holding a bright light in my hand, so it didn't matter if I tried to hide as long as the light was on. 
I pointed it at the floor but didn't turn it off. I heard a shuffling sound getting closer. I was tempted to turn off the light but giving the edge to this creature was not a good idea. It already had the home field advantage. I heard it sniffing but I couldn't see it yet. I decided to find out more by bringing my light up and shining it deeper into the cave. I got the shock of my life when my light landed on the creature and it was only a few steps away. It was big, at least six feet tall and looked like a dog. With a long snout, only its body seemed elongated. It stood on its hind legs and dead hands attached to muscular arms. Overall, it looked like a nightmare. It recoiled from the light and let out a growl. It was all that I could do to keep from soiling myself. Without thinking, I pointed my gun and fired. The sound was deafening. My ears instantly started ringing. The creature roared at me and then turned and ran deeper into the cave. It had roared a mere few feet from me, yet I barely heard it. I stumbled and had to take a minute to steady myself, and then I started following it deeper into the cave. To this day, I really don't know why other than needing to know if the hiker was alive. I looked at the ground to see if there was any blood, but there wasn't. I must have just startled it with the shot, and that wasn't great news. I had hoped that I would have hit it and it was wounded. Just scared meant that it would be ready to fight when I saw it again. After all, I'm sure to the creature that I was the invader and it was defending its home. I continued farther into the cave, shining my light and watching for any sudden movement. I had no idea where it was or if it was setting a trap for me. I felt a whiff of air and jumped back a split second before the claws sliced the air where my face would have been. I rolled and came up shooting, holding my light beside the gun to illuminate my target. I fired over and over, pointing and shooting without having the time to aim. I watched as it ducked every shot and ran with inhuman speed. Just before it disappeared from sight, I saw it skip a step as I fired my last shot. My hopes soared that I had hit it at least once. I ejected the magazine and put a fresh one in, reminding myself that I only had one more and chastising myself for not being more careful with my limited ammo. I justified it by telling myself that there's no use dying with a full magazine. I followed once again nearly jumping for joy when I came to the spot where it had disappeared and saw a spot of fresh blood on the ground. I was hoping for more, but as I went, the drops were every few feet. Even though it didn't seem like much at the speed that it was running, I was sure that it had sprung a major leak. I followed the trail deeper into the cave. There was a chill in the air that made me shudder. My mind told me that it felt like a tomb. My tomb. I shook off those thoughts and continued until the blood had stopped. I shone my light on the small puddle in the ground beyond where there was no blood. My mind screamed at me that it was a trap. I shone my light all around, even on the ceiling, but I couldn't see it. I started backing out the same way that I had come in my eyes darting all around in search of my prey. It hit me like a bulldozer going 60 miles an hour. 
It had come out of nowhere and rammed me in the back. I sprawled out on the floor, rolling to a stop. My flashlight lay a few feet away and I had no idea where the gun was. The wind was knocked out of me. I tried to breathe but couldn't. I just lay there gasping for air. It slowly circled around me, growling and bristling. I knew that it was going for the kill. I screamed at my brain to move, but my body refused to cooperate. I tried to focus on my breathing and regain mobility as it circled closer. I could see its breath chugging out of its mouth like a steam engine. I knew that it was time. My arm was the first to recover. I slowly moved it toward the flashlight. It stopped circling just as I got a grip on the light. I saw the creature hunching to lunge at me. I clicked the light to strobe and aimed it at the creature's face. It screamed and clawed at the air as if it could fight off the light. I saw the creature hunching to lunge at me. I clicked the light to strobe and aimed it at the creature's face. It screamed and clawed at the air as if it could fight off the light. I rose to my knees, keeping the light on it. When it turned away, I shone it around desperately searching for my gun. I found it a few yards away and tried to run for it, but my body hadn't fully recovered and I fell flat on my face. My life in the balance, I didn't bother with the pain of my freshly broken nose. I crawled toward the gun with every ounce of energy in me. It seemed like an eternity until I put my hand on the grip and brought it to bear on the creature. It had recovered and was running at me full speed. I shone the strobe at it again and it veered away from the light. I stood and aimed at it, squeezing the trigger. I saw the satisfying impact of the bullet in its side and squeezed the trigger again, making another hole on the far side of its chest. I squeezed over and over, hitting it each time and watching it reel from the impact. But it stayed on its feet. It growled and charged as my slide locked back, showing an empty chamber. I shone the strobe in its eyes once more, but this time it just ran off to the other side of the room. I used the distraction to eject my magazine and load in the last full one. I released the slide and started firing immediately, hitting it in the hind quarter and leg, but not stopping it. I stopped shooting and forced myself to concentrate. I aimed carefully as it ran toward me and at the right moment I squeezed the trigger. It went down hard, squealing like a stuck pig. It thrashed and clawed at its face, tumbling over itself. Blood flew everywhere from its many gunshot wounds, but it still continued flailing about and squealing in pain. After a few minutes of this, it finally settled down and it was still enough for me to see my handiwork. I had shot it in the eye. There was nothing left there but a bloody hole. I didn't dare approach it. I stood at a respectful distance and watched, my gun ready if it tried to make a move. Its squeals became moans, finally turning into a heavy sigh and then it was still. I shone the light on it, feeling cautiously optimistic that this thing was no longer a threat. And then I remembered what I was doing here in the first place. 
I tried to get my bearings and proceeded further into the cave. My main thought was not only finding the hiker alive, but also hoping and praying that there wasn't another one of those creatures here. I didn't have another fight like that left in me. The path curved downwards until it came to a large open area. I shone the light around, looking for anything. Off in the far corner, there was a flash of red as I panned through. I approached it cautiously and found that it was a jacket. Inside the jacket was a piece of meat that used to be a human being. His throat had been ripped out and his legs were missing. All that was left of them were some bones. The thing must have been working its way up, saving the arms and torso for later. The man's face was a frozen scream. I can't even imagine the horror of being dragged away from your loved ones, only to be murdered and eaten in some cold and dark cave. I wasn't even sure if he was dead when the thing ripped his legs off. I had to stop focusing on such things and decide what to do. If I left the remains here, there was no doubt some other animal would come by and finish off what the creature had started. I needed to try to get him to his family for closure and a proper burial. I bent down, trying to figure out how to carry him. A fireman's carry was out. There were no legs for counterbalance. In the end, I picked him up by his arms and flung them over my shoulder, holding on to them and turning his body into some macabre payback. I started back out of the cave, hoping that I would be able to carry him all the way back to the campsite and finally back to my truck. As I trudged back through the cave, I came to the section where our fight had taken place. Shell casings and blood were strewn about the ground. I wondered to myself how I had avoided getting hit by a stray ricochet when I looked over to where the creature lay. Only it wasn't there. I shone my light all around frantically whipping about, but it was gone. I found the spot where it had laid still and I thought that it had died. There was a large pool of blood there, but no body. I pulled my gun out of my holster and injected the magazine, and checked to see how many rounds that I had left. There were only two. I hoped whoever that thing was that it was no longer in the mood for hunting or revenge. In the end, I decided there was nothing that I could do. If the thing attacked me, I was defenseless, carrying literal dead weight on my back. I holstered the gun and hitched up my human backpack, then shone the light toward the mouth of the cave and kept walking. My hearing was just starting to return to normal, although I was sure that I would have some permanent hearing loss. I could hear the shuffling of my feet as I staggered toward the cave opening. When I got there, I found a world transformed. Daylight was just starting to peek its way around the dark. However, the rain had created a massive fog bank. I couldn't see anything down in the valley that I had come from. It was a sea of fog. Only the peaks of the mountains escaped its suffocating blanket. I looked over and saw my backpack patiently waiting for my return. I lay my burden down and got the water bottle out, glad that I had saved the last drink for now. As I sat on the edge of the cave precipice, I looked down and wondered how I was going to get the body down there without falling to my own death.
but for an instant it was tempting to throw it down and find it at the bottom once I had climbed down. But I thought that this fellow had been through enough and didn't need the indignity of becoming a human frisbee. I dug through my backpack and found some bungee cords. I bungeed him to my back and carefully started my descent, leaving my faithful backpack to watch me desert it. I wished that I could take it with me, but there was no way that I could carry both. As I climbed down, there were a few times that I lost my footing and nearly took the short and deadly route down. Fortunately, though, I made it to the bottom in one piece. Instead of celebrating, though, I discovered a new problem. The fog was so thick that I could barely see my hand in front of my face. I had no idea how I was going to find my way out of there. I decided to go straight away from the mountain and hope that the fog cleared as I went. The rain had turned the forest into a marshland. The ground was soft and these streams had overgrown their banks. I found myself wading through knee-deep water on more than one occasion. As I trudged along, hoping that I had enough energy to get back without collapsing from exhaustion, two thoughts chased each other around my mind. Where were the other hikers and where was the creature? I hadn't seen any other remains in the cave. If it had killed them, it hadn't had time to take them back to the cave yet. Perhaps my pursuit had forced it to retreat to its cave before it could properly retrieve its own bounty. I had kept my ears open for any sounds of it following me. The most disconcerting thing was the lack of forest noises. The animals and birds were strangely silent. Usually that meant there was a predator nearby. In this ungodly fog, perhaps they were just sleeping and waiting for it to clear. Yeah, that sounded good. It gave me the false illusion that I wasn't in mortal danger from a wounded alpha predator bent on revenge. But I couldn't focus on that or worry would drain my resolve to get us both out of there. I took a break from trudging and tried to get my bearings. I checked my watch and I had been walking for over an hour. It was late morning and the sun should have been high in the sky, but the oppressive fog continued to smother it. I looked around, but there was nothing to see except the dingy gray curtain of hopelessness. I was about to collapse and give up when I heard it. The faint sound of hope. I could hear the creek running. As hope rose, it was suddenly dashed. I heard the sound of footsteps behind me. I whipped around so fast that my macabre backpack nearly made me lose my balance. I couldn't see anything through the fog, but that didn't mean it wasn't there. With a renewed sense of determination along with the strong desire to elude whatever was pursuing me, I set out toward the sound of the creek. It was still slow going, but I found fearing for my life was a great motivator. I had no doubt whatsoever that the footsteps behind me were those of the creature bent on revenge. After what seemed like an eternity, I gazed at the most awesome sight that I had seen all day. Wolf Creek and all its six-foot-wide, overflowing banks of glory. I followed it until I came across the Lakeshore Trail and the journey became much easier. The fog was even beginning to lift, which was a blessing but also a curse. I could finally see far enough behind me to confirm that the creature was indeed following me. I had wondered the entire time why it hadn't overtaken me, 
but now that I caught sight of it, I understood. It was grotesque, and looked like it came straight from hell. Its one eye socket was leaking and the many bullet wounds covered it in blood. There were places where I could see eternal organs trying to escape the body, and its right leg had a bullet wound. It limped severely. As I watched it, I wondered how it had made it this far, but then I looked into its remaining eye and saw intense and rage burning. I knew that I would die a horribly grotesque death if I slowed enough for it to catch up to me. When we continued the slow pursuit of death until I reached the banks where Wolf Creek opened up into the lake, my energy was nearly gone. At one point, I considered dropping my human backpack in hopes that it would feed on it instead of me, but then I would have failed. I came here to find this hiker and bring him back. That thought lit a fire deep within me. I came to the edge of the lake, with the creature a mere few yards behind me. I glanced around, hoping to see a boat that I could flag down, but no such luck. With no other choice, I waded into the water. It was cold, but instead of refreshing me, it chilled me and sapped my little remaining strength. The creature entered the water behind me and seemed to be gaining. It got deeper to the point where I was no longer able to walk and had to start swimming. The far side of the lake looked like it was miles away, even though I knew it was much less than that. I swam for all I was worth, knowing at any moment that I would be pulled under by the creature. My passenger strapped to my back wasn't helping either. The literal definition of dead weight every minute that I had to fight off the urge to dump him. When I reached the other side, I was exhausted. I lay there on the shore waiting for the creature to disembowel me, but unable to move to defend myself in any way. With great effort, I turned to look back and see when my doom would come. To my great surprise, I saw it staring back at me from the far beach. I guess it couldn't swim. I chuckled to myself as I lay there gathering strength for the continued journey back to the truck. Eventually, I got there. As I opened the door for a fleeting moment, I considered putting the hiker in the passenger seat. But then I looked at the wet, soaked torso and considered, gently laying him in the truck bed. The drive back was long and I continually had to shake myself to stay awake, but eventually I made it to the cabin. I stumbled up to the door and I knocked once. Oh my god, the woman said when she saw me. Are you alright? I hung my head. No, but I will be after around three days of sleep. Unfortunately, I have bad news for you. I found your husband, but not your son or brother-in-law. A man and a boy came out of the cabin and stared at me. I instantly knew who they were and grabbed them both in a huge hug. I'm so glad you made it out, I said fighting back tears. Um, thanks, the man said pulling out of my hug. Who are you again? He's the ranger that came to look for all three of you, she said. I don't understand, your tracks were confusing, I said. I followed them down to the bridge, but then they went back up to the campsite. We got some rest, the boy said. Then Uncle Roger came and said that we were going. We left everything and slipped away to the boat, rode across the river and laughed. I smiled. 
I'm very glad you did. He looked at me with expectant eyes. You said you found my dad. My face fell. I did, but it was too late. So he's... I nodded somberly. Where is he? He's in my truck, but you don't want to see that. Before I could say another word, he ran to the truck and looked in the passenger seat. A look of confusion fell over his eyes as he saw that nobody was there. And then he slowly looked toward the bed of the truck. He stepped back and looked over the side into the bed. He instantly dissolved into tears and slid down to the side of the truck, sobbing. I'm so sorry, I said to the woman and man. She grabbed me and gave me a hug. Don't be, she said. Without you, we wouldn't have known for weeks, months, maybe even years what had happened. We would go on looking with false hope. You've given us a chance for closure and to properly grieve. She released me and I wiped my eyes. I looked at the man and walked down to the truck. He followed and we gently removed the body and laid him on the couch and then covered him with a blanket. The boy followed us back to the cabin but wouldn't look at me or anyone else. He sat in a chair and stared at the blanket covering his father's body. I knew that I had done all that I could so I excused myself and started toward the door. I paused and said to the boy, I promise I'll make sure that thing never hurts anyone again. He looked up at me, eyes full of tears, and said, How will that help my dad? His mother opened her mouth, but I held a hand up to silence her. I knew the boy was just hurting. I left without another word. On the drive back, I called the station and told them everything that had happened, and then told them that I was going home and calling off for the following day. After getting home and stumbling into a shower and collapsing in bed, there was only one thought on my mind. I would return to Wolf Creek very soon with more and bigger guns. I would end that monster if it was the last thing I did. But that's another story. Today's episode is sponsored by HelloFresh. Fall is definitely one of my favorite times of the year, but with that comes a busy schedule which can make it difficult to find time to make healthy and filling meals for dinner. Luckily, HelloFresh has over 40 recipes to choose from weekly, so there's always something delicious to try. HelloFresh offers in-season ingredients so you'll taste all the freshness of fall in every bite of their chef-crafted recipes. Produce travels from the farm to your door for peak ripeness that you can taste. My favorite fall recipe so far has been the autumn spiced pork chops with roasted Brussels sprouts and honey butter sweet potatoes. It was super easy to make with step-by-step -step instructions and it tasted amazing. I'll definitely be going back to this one. To get started, go to hellofresh.com slash 50 mrcreeps and use code 50 Mr. Creeps for 50% off plus free shipping. Again, that's HelloFresh.com slash 50 Mr. Creeps. Use code 50 Mr. Creeps for 50% off plus free shipping. HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. We found a town abandoned in the mountains. 
Something in it didn't want us to leave. Written by CIA Herb. Three months ago, my wife and I were on our way to visit my mother-in-law, living alone far up in the White Mountains. I had been driving for five hours and my wife Betty started saying that she needed to use the bathroom and that she was really hungry. My full bladder agreed with her on the first issue, though I also tried to make good time and get there before nightfall, when the street signs would become harder to read. I had never been to Betty's mother's house before or even the county that it lay in. I pulled over the car on the east side of Main Street, looking down the center of the town. It had everything a small rural American town usually had. Quaint houses with blue siding, 24-hour diners, hardware stores and tobacco shops, liquor stores and restaurants. Majestic mountains rose all around us and the town itself was so high that I could see for miles. The air smelled clean and sweet. Everything was here except... No people, my wife said, as if reading my mind. I looked over at her, frowning. Yeah, this is bizarre, I said. This place looks like it was hit by the Black Death. Where is everyone? My wife unlocked her door and got out, pulling a cigarette from her purse and lighting it. She gave the pack to me and I took one. My wife looked pale and thin under the late afternoon sun. Her black hair and dark eyes contrasting heavily with her light Irish skin. Lately, she seemed to have lost weight, but she wouldn't talk about it. Every time I asked her if anything was wrong, she had said no, and I could get no more response from her than that. The fragrant Turkish tobacco of the camel cigarette instantly woke me up. We didn't smoke in the car as it was brand new and it cost me over 25000 that I didn't really have. The last thing that I wanted was burn marks on the seats and ashes flying everywhere. We walked slowly down the sidewalk, looking around, searching for the slightest signs of movement. I didn't even see an animal except for an occasional fly buzzing past on its way to eat garbage. I looked into the diner window and I saw plates set out on the tables. Mold grew wild on the food. Strange patches of green and red and black sprouting filaments and making the dishes unrecognizable. Next to the plates, I saw cell phones and even car and house keys. All the screens and the phones looked black, as if they had been sitting there for months. A slight layer of grime and dust had settled over everything. The door stood wide open, a cheerful sign reading, We're open, come in, displayed on the front. That's gotta be a code violation, I said, pointing inside at the disgusting plates of mold and fungus. My wife laughed, but it sounded nervous and high-pitched, almost desperate in its cadence. Listen, Betty, do you think we should maybe call the police or something? She looked at me for a long moment and then sighed. I mean, I don't know, she said. What crime has been committed? It's just an empty town. Maybe everybody is at a funeral. Her voice raised, hopefully. I laughed. 
What, and they just abandoned their shops and restaurants with no workers and moldering food? And by the way, there's a cop car right there, I said, pointing. It sat on four flat tires covered in a thick coat of dust. The tires didn't look damaged in any way. It seems they had just lost pressure over time without anybody to care for them. Looking around at the other cars, I saw most were not in much better shape. Many of them had a low or no air in their tires, and their windshields were covered in dirt and grime. It looked like a junkyard in the middle of a town. A junkyard that had been abandoned. I'm calling the cops, I said, pulling out my phone. I opened the screen and of course found that I had no service. I tried sending a text to my mother explaining the situation and telling her to call the authorities if she received it and to send help immediately. I gave her the name of the town and the time. I figured the chances of a text going through were far better than a phone call, since a brief moment of service could prove sufficient to transfer the message. Yeah, I'm not calling the cops, I shook my head. We don't have a shred of service out here. What kind of town doesn't have service on its own main street? We are in the middle of the mountains, Betty said. Who the heck knows out here? We kept walking down the street in silence. Betty went inside a few of the shops and tried flicking on the lights or looking for a phone. The electricity was apparently as dead as the town itself. I occasionally checked my phone, finding nothing had changed. As we walked further along, I started to give up hope that help would be coming from outside. I finished my cigarette and Betty lit another one and gave me the pack again. I sighed and took another camel out of the pack, lighting it and inhaling deeply. It gave me something to do at least and it helped take my mind off the strangeness of this town. And then we came up to the police station, and I choked on the smoke as I saw what lay there before us. At first, I thought that some vandal had used the red spray paint to put up a bizarre slogan across the front of the station. But then I saw all the flies, and I smelled the copper and iron, and I realized it likely wasn't paint at all. We follow the black sun. It said in huge letters, each of them nearly six feet tall and thickly painted across the windows and walls. My wife squinted at it, tilting her head in a girlish way, her black hair falling across her face. She took a long, thin hand and pushed it aside. The black sun, she said. Is that a metal band? It sounds like those Norwegian Satanists that you like to listen to. What's the name? Burzum and Darkthrone and stuff. She started walking forwards, trying to inspect the letters more closely. I put my hand on her shoulder, and I pulled her back with a little more force than I had intended. She stumbled and gave me a dirty look. Johnny, be careful. You almost made me fall. Sorry, I said, my heart pounding in my chest. But don't get too close to that. I'm fairly sure that's blood, and it might be a crime scene. You don't want to touch it or trample the area if it is. She looked at me shocked and then glanced back at the letters, seeing the flies swarming around the coagulated sticky mess. Animal blood? 
she asked helpfully. Yeah, sure, I guess. I said noncommittedly. Okay, let's get back to the car and get the heck out of here. I think I've seen enough. We need to get the cops here. Whatever is going on, it's way beyond anything that we can deal with. I turned around quickly and taking my wife's hand. She pulled away. Oh, don't start getting all worked up, she said. We haven't seen any indication of anything crazy, not yet. All we know is the people are somewhere, not here, and that somebody vandalized the police station. I want to keep exploring. I looked at her amazed. She pointed past me at an old-looking church built of stone, probably from the 1800s. It stood near the end of the small downtown area next to thick clusters of evergreen trees. It had a plaque outside that I couldn't make out. The doors stood wide open and the darkness inside seemed to beckon. For a moment, I almost agreed with Betty. I almost said that I too wanted to go inside that church. I think it was what the French call Le Père du Vide, or the Call of the Void. That urge to suddenly jump when standing at the edge of a cliff, or to see if a car can go 130 miles an hour on the highway when it's snowing. Then I shook my head quickly, as if awakening from a short dream. I looked back at Betty and laughed. There was no humor in it, however. You must be crazy, I said. I want to get out of here now. There's nothing to explore, everyone's gone, and if we keep going deeper into this, I have a feeling that we'll run into something far worse than anything we've yet seen. Okay, how about this? She said, making a thoughtful face and putting her finger up to her chin. Why don't you see if the cop car is unlocked? Jump it with our car and use whatever they have in it to call for help. They probably have a walkie-talkie or something connected to the state police station. If you really think we need a SWAT team here, then that's probably the quickest way. No, let's just leave, I said, walking quickly back in the direction of our car. I saw the new Chevy Trailblazer off in the distance, contrasting heavily with the dirty and abandoned cars surrounding it. And then as we got close, I saw that it had four flat tires. I started running forwards, seeing the deep knife marks slicing open each of the sidewalls. What in the... I said, stopping in my tracks. I looked around the town but still saw no trace of anyone. Why? Why would someone do this? To stop us from leaving, obviously. My wife said, sounding unperturbed. Look, we might be here for a while, so I'm going into that package store and grabbing a few things. Maybe some wine, maybe some cigarettes. Because somebody smoked most of mine. She narrowed her eyes at me playfully. Do you even realize what's happening right now? I asked, my voice rising unconsciously in anger and frustration. No, do you? She said. This isn't a joke, I said, feeling hot and anxious. We're trapped here and there's letters written in blood, and now somebody slashed our tires. Do you still think that we don't need the police? She smiled at me. You always worry too much, she said. Just calm down for once. Don't have an anxiety attack on me. There's no cell phone service to call for help if you do, remember. 
then jogged something in my memory and I looked questioningly at her. Do you have any weapons on you? I asked. I have. I reached into my pockets frowning. I pulled out a small Swiss army knife. Its red surface looked dull from age, and even I thought it looked small and pathetic in my hand. This. She laughed. What are you going to do with that, kill it, chipmunk? She asked. I mean, I think you can cut your nails with it too. If you want to use a dull, crappy pair of scissors that barely cut paper. She laughed at her own joke, then stopped when she saw the anger and fear on my face. Betty looked at me with a strange expression. It was hard to perturb her. She had always been different from me. When I was stressed about money or work or anything else, she would laugh it off and say that I was too serious. But this seemed to be stretching the boundaries. I felt in my heart that we were in danger and she didn't seem to notice. Look, she continued a sign. Let's go get some cigarettes and drinks and stuff. Then maybe we can take the car over to the police cruiser and jump it. Then we can call the cops and AAA too. And just sit here and wait for the cavalry to arrive. This is a brand new car, I yelled. I'm not driving it on the rims over there. That's going to destroy the rotors and could damage some other stuff. I didn't actually know anything about cars and she knew it. No, I think it'll be fine, she said smiling. But I wouldn't get my. Her words were cut off by a siren that had started up suddenly, deafening and shrill. It seemed to vibrate the air itself. And the dead town came to life in a cacophony of noise and vibration. I saw my wife's lips moving as she tried to scream something, but I had no idea what it was. I covered my ears with my hands, which barely helped, and then after about ten seconds it stopped. My ears rang, a high-pitched whine like I had just walked into a flashbang. It went away slowly and Betty's voice came back to me, rising from nothingness in a crescendo until I could make out her cadence and speech again. Into the siren, she said, her face unusually serious and drawn. The sun had started to go down behind the mountains now, sending long shadows streaking across the road. Soon it would be dark and we would likely be trapped here for the entire night, or longer. Hiking out of here was an option, and the highway was only about five miles away. These thoughts passed through my mind as I saw shadows fall over Betty, before I realized that I had no idea what she said. What? I yelled. I said, we should go towards the siren. They have electricity. They probably have a landline and maybe there's people there. She said, still speaking far too loudly. I guessed her ears were ringing as well. Okay, you don't have to yell, I said. I can hear you and I don't want to attract the wrong kind of attention. She pointed at the sliced tires of my car. We already have, Johnny, she said seriously. Listen, I don't like this, I said. I don't want to be trapped in some nutjob's basement a few hours from now, chained up against a wall and covered in blood, and think back on how I should have done something different. I think the safest plan is to leave this place now, I mean right now. 
let's grab some drinks and cigarettes and whatever from the store, and hike back out towards the highway on the main route. Maybe we'll see somebody on the walk, but we'll definitely find help on the highway. She thought about it for a fraction of a second and then nodded. Okay, whatever, she said. Let's go. The plan worked at first. Betty ran into the package store while I kept watch outside, looking up and down the street for any signs of movement. I saw nothing but from these slashed tires I assumed that we were being watched. Whoever they were, they knew when we were far enough away to vandalize the car. A minute later, Betty came out with a plastic bag. I saw nine or ten cartons of cigarettes in it and some plastic nips of Jack Daniels. She also had Coca-Cola and some water. I thought you were grabbing a pack of cigarettes, I said, narrowing my eyes. Ten cartons? Why do we need ten cartons for a five-mile hike? Oh, we don't need them, she said. But you know, they're expensive down in Connecticut. Much cheaper in this town. Yeah, I guess you can't beat free, I said, reaching into the bag and taking out a pack. We started walking out of town in silence. I didn't even hear an animal stir. The regular buzz of the insects that chirped and squeaked throughout the White Mountains was missing here. It gave the town a supernatural eeriness, as if we had wandered into an apocalyptic wasteland where even the crickets had gone to die. To break the monotony, I lit a cigarette. The flick of the lighter and the soft tread of our footsteps were the only sounds that we could hear for miles. As we got further down Main Street, the shops and houses started to thin out. Soon after we had passed the church, both sides of the street had turned to forest, and only an occasional house or farm broke the endless trees. The downtown area couldn't have been more than a quarter mile long, but this town and these surrounding forests felt like it went on forever. This is really spooky, Betty said, shattering the silence. I was glad for a break though, I felt eyes on me as she spoke, as if we had somehow violated the sanctity of a graveyard with laughter. I've never experienced anything as weird as this, I said, whispering and getting close to Betty. I noticed that she also spoke in a quiet voice, and she constantly glanced behind and around. She smoked a lot of cigarettes, nervously lighting one after the other, and she drank three nips on the way, chasing them down with the coke. I took one myself and I downed it. The burning liquid seemed to revive me somewhat and clear my head. I chugged some soda to get the taste out of my mouth. Betty had opened her mouth to say something else when the screaming erupted from all around us. The sun had long disappeared behind the mountains, and we were surrounded by thick curtains of darkness. I couldn't see more than a few feet into the forest. Betty gripped my hand tightly. Okay, now I'm really freaked out, she whispered into my ear. We had both stopped and stood, holding hands as shrieks echoed through the trees. The light breeze carried a smell that nearly made me gag. The smell of decay and blood. And do you think it's a fox or a fisher cat or something? I shook my head silently, 
then leaned close to her. We're going to run, I said, back towards the town. It's a lot closer, ready? She nodded grimly. Go. We started sprinting away, our footsteps bouncing off the pavement far too loud. The screaming drew closer and something broke through the outer boundary of the woods. With the twigs crunching and branches snapping, I saw the silhouette emerge into the road to my left. The smell of rotting flesh seemed overwhelming now. I only saw her for a second, but I knew in that moment that she wasn't human. It looked like a woman, or at least, like the corpse of one. But she was clearly alive in some form, running and shrieking, sending out wails of pure agony and horror. The eyes snapped onto me, and I met them for a brief moment. Even in the dim light of the moon and the stars, I could see that they were pure white, without pupils or irises. And yet they seemed to see everything, even in the deepening shadows. Long, stringy black hair ran down over her face and down her back. Papery skin hung tightly to the skull, and the mouth hung wide open, inhumanly wide, like the tendons and ligaments holding the jar to the skull had been cut. The huge black pit of her mouth emanated those screams constantly, as if she didn't need to breathe. On the body, parts of the skin were missing, I could see the bones beneath. They were thin and fragile skin had broken. Purple and black sores shone from these spots. The long skeletal hand of the woman ended up in claw-like fingers, with the nails blackened and the bones sticking out at the end of each digit. She ran fast, gaining on us, and she wasn't alone. I could see dozens more bodies breaking through the tree line now, a deafening howling emanating from them as they ran. I was breathing hard by this point. I could see the first buildings of the town up ahead. We only had to make it another hundred paces and then we could lock ourselves in and barricade the doors and windows. I didn't dare look back, but I heard the screaming from just behind me. I felt a soft swipe across my back the sharp, bony fingers dragging across the shirt for a brief moment. It gave me another adrenaline rush, and I pushed myself forward with all of my will, feeling my heart beating far too fast in my chest. I began to feel lightheaded and see flashes of white light every time that I blinked. I knew that I would pass out if I had to go much further. I hadn't gone running in over ten years, probably since I was in high school but I ran for my life just the same. And Betty was in better shape than me and she had gained some ground. She glanced back as she sprinted down the middle of the dark street. I saw her point to the church. It stood just ahead, the doors already opened, as if waiting for us, as if it knew that we would be back. She veered sharply to the right and I followed close behind, panting and sweating like a madman. The doors were so close now. The shrieking behind me had been joined by a few others. With the last of my strength, I began an all-out sprint, hoping that I wouldn't trip over something and go flying into a car. It would mean the end of me, of that I was certain. We ran through the doors into the church. I turned around and saw that the creatures had gone. Their screaming cut off as soon as we had entered. And now I saw no sign of them. 
it was as if they had vanished. I shut the doors of the church just the same, turning a deadbolt to lock them. Betty had her phone out, turning on the flashlight app to help me see in the dark church. I would have to also check for auxiliary entrances, but it was a start just the same. And then I turned and I saw what Betty had already noticed. The desecration of this holy place. The statue of Jesus on his cross had been broken off at the bottom of the beam and now hung upside down from a rope that extended to the high ceiling, dozens of feet above our heads. His face had been slashed and cut, his nose and eyes now missing, and on the front of his chest, I saw a strange symbol carved deeply into the wood with what looked like blood. The sigil looked like an upside-down triangle within a larger upside-down triangle and had lines curving out of the sides of the bottom. Connected to the lines of the larger triangle at the bottom, I saw a line curving like a J and on the other side, another line curved like a backwards J. The lines extended outwards, curving over a V. Around the sigil sat a thick and black circle. It definitely seemed magical, like something from a medieval textbook on witchcraft. That's the sigil of Lucifer, my wife said quietly. How do you know that? I asked and she shrugged. I read a couple of books on black magic when I was a teen, she said. That one stuck with me for some reason. That symbol, it's eerie. I never forgot it. I looked over at the font at the front of the church. Instead of holy water, I saw that it was filled with blood. I guess no one's crossing themselves in here today. I said, trying to break the harsh terror that threatened to overwhelm us. And then, as Betty moved her light around, I realized that we weren't alone in here. People sat in the pews, their heads bowed, silently praying. Dozens of people were in here with us, yet they made no noise. And no one turned their heads to look at us or say anything. An icy chill ran down my spine. I turned to Betty and I pointed at the people. Yeah, I see them, she whispered and began to creep slowly forward. I took out my phone and turned on my light as well, moving silently a few feet behind her. I shone the light at the first pew of people and I gasped. They all had their throats cut. A waterfall of thick, coagulated blood stained the front of their bodies. The smell hit me at once, an overwhelming odor of rotting meat and iron. I gagged, turning to Ratch. Betty pulled me towards the back of the church. I searched for any other entrances, locking the ancient deadbolts on the doors. We ended up going to the rectory in the back, sitting on the priest's couch. There were no bodies in here and no smell but the musty scent of an old building and books. Well, Betty said, turning to me, barely concealing the terror in her eyes. It looks like we found the townspeople. Some of them, anyways. I said nothing, but instead put my phone down and sat in the darkness with her, putting my arm around her while she cried. As she wept into my shoulder, I heard the siren start up again. It sounded muffled inside the church but still vibrated the floors and the walls all around us. 
I didn't know what the siren signified, but I doubted that it was anything good. After all, the last time that the siren had sounded, we had run into something horrible. Dozens of walking corpses with white eyes that seemed to look at us with thirst and hunger. But I had no plans, not anymore. We were unarmed and seemed to be in a relatively safe place. My main thought was that we should hide in here until the morning, when daylight arrived and made travel safer. We could always try jumping the police car or even finding a car where the tires weren't totally flat and jumping that to drive it out of town. I had seen dozens of car keys in the diner and one of them had to fit with one of the more reliable cars parked on the street. If I had to, I would drive my car on the rims as far as it would go and then abandon it once we were outside the city limits. Anything would be better than being trapped here for another night. The siren wound down again, its haunting echoes dissipating into the night. I turned to Betty, flipping my phone over to get some light. Let's search this place, I said. Maybe we can find a weapon. This is the priest's living quarters, I think. So that means there should be at least some knives for cooking somewhere around here. If we're lucky, maybe the guy even had a gun. This was a thought that I had considered already, going from house to house to search for guns. This was, after all, rural New Hampshire, deep in the mountains where people like to hunt, and where farmers would likely keep some sort of shotgun or rifle for pests. If we were armed, our chances of survival would rise exponentially. At least, so I hoped. For all I knew, ammo would be as useless as a squirt gun against those things that we had seen coming out of the forest. My wife wiped away her tears and then she reached into her purse and pulled out her keychain. She dropped it into my hand. I looked at it for a moment confused. That black thing, she said, pointing at a small canister connected to the chain. It's pepper spray. I don't know how effective it is, I've had it for nearly ten years. It might not even work at this point. I don't think pepper spray really goes bad though. It should still be able to stop someone in their tracks. Yeah, someone as in a human, I said. We don't even know if those things feel pain. Their eyes. I didn't need to finish the sentence. She had seen their strange cataract eyes. She knew as well as I did that we weren't dealing with the living. I got up, sighing. I took her hand and helped her up. We grabbed our phones and she grabbed her purse and plastic bag of goodies, lighting a cigarette with trembling fingers. It took her nearly three tries to get it lit. She reminded me of a Parkinson's patient in his final days. We explored the rectory area in silence, finding a small kitchen. As I had suspected, it had a knife block with some long and wicked blades. I took one for myself and gave one to Betty. We went back to the rectory and searched every drawer and closet, but I could find no sign of a gun or ammo. Feeling slightly better now that I at least had a knife, we went back to the chapel. I shone my phone's light across the immense chamber, and my heart leapt into my throat. The front door stood wide open now, letting the dim moonlight stream into the nave. 
Even worse, the corpses were all gone. And while we were in the rectory, somebody had used blood to write a message across the wall, covering the stained glass windows and aged beams in letters five feet tall. The black sun awakens. As I stood there, gaping, not sure what to do, Betty grabbed my arm and pointed outside the door. Look, she cried, a note of triumph in her voice. Someone's coming. I saw with excitement that she was right. I felt a surge of hope rise in me so powerful that I felt lightheaded. Headlights streamed down the dark street, casting long, twisting shadows across the buildings. I grabbed her hand and we ran outside without a second thought. The car traveled slowly down Main Street, coming from the same direction that we had originally come. We ran out into the middle of the road and I started waving my arms frantically, trying to get the driver's attention. A chubby old man pulled up beside us, looking at us with suspicion and narrowing his eyes. I gestured for him to put his window down. He hesitated for a long moment, looking between me and my wife and then lowered it an eighth of an inch. I heard all of his doors lock as he quickly pressed the button. Um, does anyone live here? He asked. I need some gas. The map said that there's a station here, supposed to be 24 hours, but there's no one inside. Doesn't look like anybody's been inside in weeks. All the food in the refrigerators had started to rot and there's not even electricity. So, he trailed off. I didn't even know where to start. I certainly didn't want to start rambling about walking corpses and messages painted in blood. But Betty, always my smarter and better half, thought quickly instead. We had a massive electrical failure, she said lying smoothly and smiling in him with her disarming charm. I saw the old man relax slightly, though he still glanced over at me with suspicion from time to time. We really need help. Our car broke down and everyone besides us was already evacuated. Yeah, the old man said skeptically. Makes sense, I guess. Okay, so you both live here. I nodded, building on the lie. Yeah, we used to, but we missed the evacuation. Can you please just give us a ride to the highway? I said, and giving him what I hoped was a neighborly smile. He frowned, the lines in his face deepening. What's your name, friend? He asked, not answering my question and refusing to roll down his window any more than the tiny crack that he made. I'm Johnny Redfern, and this is my wife, Betty. Please, sir, we really need your help. How come you two didn't just walk out of here? He asked. The highway is only a ten-minute drive. It's not exactly around the corner, but shouldn't take you more than a couple of hours to walk it. I swore inwardly. Of course, we had to get an old man who was as sharp as a tack. If he kept talking to us, he would inevitably pick up on our lies. In fact, he probably already had. The story wouldn't make much sense, especially when he kept driving and saw the messages painted in blood on the police station. And, um, well, I'm not saying you're being dishonest or anything. God forbid. But if people were evacuated, why are all their cars still here? 
Did they walk out? Did they all take the bus? Sure looks like they've been here for a while. I froze, not knowing what to say in response. I looked over at Betty, her pretty dark eyes narrowing with concentration as she stared at the old man. Sir, what's your name? She asked unpleasantly, changing her face in a moment back to the beautific and friendly smile she always used in her job as a real estate agent for difficult customers. Well, I'm Freddy, Freddy McKenzie, he said. He looked like he considered rolling the window down to shake our hands, but instead, he quickly looked away. Okay, please listen to me, Freddy. Something strange is going on here and we don't know what it is. We really need your help. I'm afraid that if we stay in this town any longer, something, something really bad is going to happen to us. Betty said, her smile fading. Freddy's bright blue eyes shone with intelligence as he weighed her words, looking from my face to hers before frowning slightly and wrinkling his forehead. Yeah, no, I'm sorry, he said. I'm sure you two are very nice people, but I don't pick up hitchhikers, ever. I don't know you guys from Adam, but if you want, I can call you a tow truck when I get on the highway, or even a police officer and they can sort this mess out. I really don't know what's going on here and I don't want to know. This is none of my business, but I wish you both good luck. He put his car back in drive and rolled his window back up, waving in a friendly manner but not meeting our eyes. He pulled away at a snail's pace, going at least 10 miles under the speed limit as he drove down the road. I should have maced him, Betty said bitterly watching the old man's taillights as they grew smaller. I really should have. I thought about it, you know. What would that have accomplished? I asked. Well, it would have made me feel better, she said. We both laughed in an anxious and nervous release of tension that I felt I needed at that moment. A gunshot pierced the night. I jumped, almost falling on the sidewalk curb as I quickly backed off of the road. I grabbed Betty to steady myself. She was looking down the road at the old man's red brake lights. They cast a bloody glow across the main street. Another gunshot rang out and I could hear a loud hiss, as if a monstrous snake had just awakened. But it wasn't a snake. We watched Freddy's car as clouds of smoke and plumes of exhaust began rising from the engine, and the hissing grew louder. I realized something must have given in his engine when the bullet passed through. His tires looked fine, but even from this distance, I could see a puddle expanding around his car. I didn't know anything about cars, but from my meager knowledge, I assumed that it was likely coolant or transmission fluid. Either one was not good. What should we do? Betty asked, grabbing my hand tightly. I'm now running in the direction of gunshots, if that's what you're asking, I said quickly. We should take cover. Let's go back to the church for now. What about the old man? She asked more loudly now. What's going to happen to him? We should worry about ourselves, I yelled at her, not meaning to raise my voice. She shrank back as if I had slapped her. I stepped forward, taking her hand and whispering, Sorry, I didn't mean to get angry. 
What if he dies because we did nothing? She asked. Well, he did nothing to help us, I said. Well, he was going to call for help at least. I can't really blame him for not picking up two wild-eyed strangers with a BS story in the middle of an abandoned town. I kept watching his car, but he didn't get out. Do you think he was hit? She asked. God, I don't know, I said, feeling like things were quickly spiraling out of control. Our potential rescue had turned into a potential burden. Luck was not on our side today. The old man's taillights changed as he put his car in reverse. He tried to slowly back up in our direction, but the engine made loud knocking sounds when he pressed the gas, and the thick cloud of smoke began to expand, rising up in the air in huge, billowing plumes. I heard metallic groaning sounds as the knocking died down, and then his car had stopped moving, and the engine shut off by itself. He hadn't managed to reverse more than 20 feet in that time. I wondered what he was thinking at that moment, whether he thought we were a part of some band of robbers who had staged a gunman up ahead. If I were in his shoes, I felt certain that that would be my first assumption. After all, who else in the town was there to blame? A secret gunman in Vantu who hid in buildings or in forests. Yeah, and corpses who got up and moved around but nobody in their right mind would buy that story, at least until they had seen it for themselves. Okay, screw it. Let's go get the old man out of his car and make sure that he's... I started to say, but then the siren came on again, seemingly even louder and shriller than before. I covered my ears with my hands and without thinking, I ran towards the old man's car, hoping that I wouldn't live to regret the decision. By the time that I had run through Main Street, the siren had started to die out again. It seemed to be getting shorter every time that it ran. I didn't know what to think about that. I tried to justify it by saying perhaps the building where the siren was located ran on generators and they were running out of fuel. So to compensate, they ran the siren less and less every time. But why run it at all? There was no tornado here, no hurricanes or a tsunami. It felt like I was missing an essential piece of the puzzle. As I got to within 10 feet of his car, I saw the old man moving inside, apparently unharmed. Freddy stumbled out of the driver's seat, shaking and pale. He looked at me with wide, accusing eyes. What did you do? He asked me. I'm warning you, I have a gun. I looked around at his hands and next to his seat. I saw no gun and I assumed that he might be bluffing. However, I wasn't going to risk my life on it. I still had the butcher's knife tucked into the back of my pants. The blade looped through my leather belt. And I even pulled my shirt over it so the old man wouldn't see it and get scared. I put my hands up and backed away slowly. His eyes narrowed even more as if he suspected a trick. Please, I'm just trying to help. I said. My wife and I were not actually from here, we're from Connecticut. We came here just like you, just to stop for a minute. But somebody slashed our tires in this town as some strange things happening in it. I can't explain it. That siren, every time that it goes off. I didn't know what to say next. I think it's a warning or perhaps a signal. Every time it goes off, we see people walking around. 
Maybe they're a part of a cult or something else, but we need to get to safety now. There's a church just down the street with deadbolts on all the doors. It can be locked from the inside and maybe even barricaded. We should go there immediately. If you won't come with us, that's your decision. But I'll tell you right now, you probably won't survive out here. Is that a threat? He asked, his blue eyes blazing with anger. His chubby face reddened and even his bald head had a crimson hue. Okay, fine, I tried. I said, giving up and turning to leave. Stay here and die. I started walking away and not looking back. I heard heavy footsteps slapping against the pavement and suddenly he was at my side walking with me. He sighed heavily, the redness slowly fading out of his face. I'll come with you, he said. But if this is a trick, know that I intend to report all of this to the police as soon as possible. My friend, I said, quickening my step and starting to jog towards the church. If the police were coming, don't you think they would already be here? After we got into the church and locked all the doors, we saw dark silhouettes walking past these stained glass windows. They surrounded the church, their strange gait revealing their inhuman nature even based on their shadows. I knew that it was the corpses, like the ones that I had seen out in the woods. Off in the distance, one of them started to scream, a shrill, piercing noise that carried on the wind. It sounded like she was here, standing right next to me in the church. I shuddered. I heard a few of the corpses respond until it sounded like the shrieking came from all around the perimeter of the building. Yet they didn't try to get in. If they had smashed through these stained glass windows, they could have easily crawled through, yet they didn't. At least, not yet. Soon I heard a sound like a man crying in pain. This scream sounded far different than the empty banshee wails of the corpses. I looked through a pane of clear glass and saw the woman from the forest, the walking nightmare with the black matted hair and white cataract eyes. Next to her I saw two children, twins from the look of them, dressed in nearly identical clothing. Two little boys holding hands and walking behind her. The skin on their faces had mostly peeled off showing the eternally grinning skulls underneath. Their eyes had turned white with drops of thick black blood dripping down their face like tears. Their bodies looked partially decomposed, just like the woman, with sharp finger bones poking out through the skin. On their hands, I could see the tendons and ligaments and muscle underneath, in places where the skin had been eaten away. In front of them, I saw a man crawling on his hands and knees out of the dark forest on the perimeter of town. His leg looked broken, the area around his knee twisted at a 45 degree angle, matted blood soaking into the denim. By the time I realized what I was looking at, all three had caught up to him. The woman's corpse gnashed her teeth as she drew near, biting at the air and smiling. The twins looked serene as if they were just going on a walk to the playground. They didn't hurry or run, knowing their prey was injured and doomed. The man looked back at them, an expression of sheer terror twisting his face. And then all three were on him, 
eating him alive from the legs and stomach. His agony-filled shrieks shattered the night. I turned away. Within a couple minutes, everything had gone quiet again, but I saw dozens more of those silhouettes passing on Main Street or coming from the graveyard behind the church. I wondered just how many of them we were up against. Over time, Freddy warmed up to us. He seemed to realize that we weren't lunatics who were going to stab him and eat his heart while praying to a serpent god in Aramaic. He ended up being much more talkative than I would have expected. When we talked to him in the car, he came across as an aloof curmudgeon who wouldn't have helped his own mother if she fell down. You know what this reminds me of, he said, his eyes widening, as if he were telling a ghost story around a campfire. Roanoke. Those people disappeared without a trace. I'm pretty sure that they just interbred with the natives, Betty said. The Mary Celeste was similar to this, though. The crew just disappeared from the ship in the middle of the ocean. No one knows where they went. The two of them acted much more relaxed than I felt. My nerves felt jangled and I just kept waiting for the next siren. Or maybe the gunman who shot out Freddy's engine block would show up. Armed with a semi-automatic rifle and carrying buckets of blood around with him to paint messages whenever he felt like it. I could see him in my mind's eye. A nut job and a ski mask. Two dark eyes glaring out at me, his heart filled with bloodlust and murder. These people didn't really disappear though, did they? I said, turning to look at them. We found the corpses of a couple dozen of them in here, right in the church, and we've seen more of them outside. But where's the rest of them? Betty asked. Freddie looked at her, raising an eyebrow. Yeah, there's way more than a few dozen people living in this town. Where are all the bodies? Maybe the rest of the town isn't even dead. You didn't tell me that somebody staged bodies in this church, Freddy said accusingly, looking at Betty. She shrugged. So? So maybe, he lowered his voice. This place is haunted. You ever think of that? Betty laughed out loud at that and even I cracked a smile. My friend, I said. This whole town is apparently haunted. I wouldn't worry about the church. I don't know how much time passed, but after they talked for a few more minutes, we ended up just sitting there in silence. Betty and I smoked cigarettes and Freddy drank some of the whiskey that she had grabbed. And just to steal my nerves, he said, and he looked like he needed it. He was still shaking and he would often get up and pace around in a circle muttering to himself and sending dirty looks towards the blood-stained pews. Ever since we had told him about the bodies, he had seemed much more uncomfortable and frightened. I knew how he felt. I felt the same restlessness and terror within me. It seemed like we were trying to hide in the closet as the house burned down around us. But what else could we do? Soon, that decision would be taken out of our hands. I realized that the church seemed to be getting brighter. Freddie and Betty didn't notice for a few moments as they had just started up another conversation, this time about the sigil painted on the body of Jesus hanging upside down from the ceiling. But I noticed the lightning immediately. For a second, I thought maybe the electricity had come back on, 
but that the lights were just dim. Or that maybe somebody was driving outside and their high beams shone through the windows. But I quickly realized that this light had a different texture. It was almost like a black light, giving off an intense, purplish glow over everything that it touched. And Betty had gone silent, her mouth open in silent awe. Freddy rubbed his hand over his bald head, opening his mouth. The what? he said. He stopped his pacing, nervously smoothing out his shirt. What is this? Is it some sort of stage trick? Not for me, I said, looking around the church. All the dark corners were now illuminated, shining with the eerie light. I could see the bloodstains glowing on the pews, looking almost black against the shining mahogany hue of the wood. The sigil of Lucifer shone with an intensity that dwarfed everything else in the church. It was so bright that I had to turn away. The light that it gave off was a dark red, and when I closed my eyes, I could still see that crimson symbol burned into my sight. As I looked out the side window, I saw that the light seemed to be coming from the forest at the edge of town, deep behind thick groves of evergreens and muddy swamps. It felt almost like looking into a second sun, and I quickly moved away from the window, my vision still swarming with bright dots and white light. The strange slogan that I had seen painted on the police station came into my mind. We follow the black sun. Was this what they meant? I want to go investigate, I said. And they looked at me as if I was crazy. We can't just stay here forever. Maybe we're supposed to figure this place out or stop what's happening. And who, may I ask, gave you this divine order? God? Freddy asked, smiling. No one is supposed to do anything except survive. If you want to die... He never got to finish as the siren sound had started up again. I realized as I listened intently to the shrill, deafening wail that it appeared to be coming from the same place as this eerie light that flooded the town. It shook the floors and walls and caused the upside-down statue of Jesus to start moving from side to side, swaying like a pendulum. As soon as it had stopped... I heard crashing at the back door. It sounded as if dozens of people threw their bodies against the locked doors that let out the rear entrance towards the graveyard. Yet nobody tried to break down the front doors. Without thinking, I undid the front door's deadbolt and ran outside, not looking back to see if they would follow me. With the light flooding in, I could see much more of the town illuminated. Looking into the cop car, I realized that it wasn't empty at all. The body of a police officer sat in the driver's seat, lying sideways so his head rested on the center console. He had a single gunshot through his temple, and I saw the gun still in his hand. I opened the driver's side door and a horrible odor of rotten eggs, rancid meat and feces hit me immediately. I held my breath, trying not to gag. I took the gun from his hand and quickly undid his belt, pulling it off. I turned and saw Freddy and Betty behind me, pale and watchful, looking terrified as they continuously glanced back at the church. Hide, I said quickly. I got on my belly and slid under the cop car, not looking back to see if they would follow my orders. 
If they didn't, they would probably die. As soon as I was underneath it, a gun in one hand and a heavy police belt with mace, a taser, and extra ammo on the other, I saw bodies stream out the front door of the church. Many were no more than skeletons with some tendons still clinging to the bones, yet they were still able to walk. They moved quickly, looking around with empty eye sockets and rotting faces. Betty had by this point crawled underneath beside me. I turned and saw her, watching the corpses with wide, girlish eyes. I didn't see where Freddy had gone. The corpses emerging from the church split off in groups, going in different directions. After a few minutes, none remained on the street, at least from what I could see. Looking back and forth quickly, the pistol extended in my right hand. I slid out from under the police car. I took the weapons and ammo off the belt, giving Betty a taser and another canister of mace. Give the extra mace to Freddy, I whispered. Where is Freddy? A half smile crossed her face and she pointed to the dumpster in an alley behind us. Quietly, I walked over and opened the lid, appearing inside. I saw Freddy, bugs writhing in his hair, a banana peel stuck to his chest. The smell from inside the dumpster was bad, though not nearly as bad as the rotting corpse smell from the police car. Freddy climbed out, grumbling and wiping himself off. Betty gave him the cop's mace canister, and I started walking toward the source of the eerie black light, hoping to find answers. Though this happened three months ago, I still questioned my decision that day, for that was the moment when I sealed our fates. The moment that I set my mind on walking towards the black sun, I ensured that we would see hell itself. I really don't want to go in there, Freddy said, his old man's face wrinkling in fear. He grabbed my hand tightly. Please listen to me. You don't want to go in there either. Have you seen what's happening in this town? I doubt that we'll survive much longer trying to hide, I said. Whatever is happening here, it seems to be speeding up. At first, it was just a few corpses guarding the road out of town. Now it's dozens of them, and it seems like those in the graveyard are all changed now, walking around and hunting. What will you do when it's hundreds of corpses streaming through every building and road? Where will you hide? He opened his mouth to say something but then closed it again. Look, I can't force you to come with us, I said. If you don't want to, you can stay here alone. Betty gave you the pepper spray and I'm sure you'll have no problem fighting off hundreds of hungry walking corpses with it. Right? He sighed heavily. I'll come with you fine, he said. But if we get ambushed, I'm running. I should have never come to this town, I knew it. I had enough gas to get home, but I thought to myself, why not, it's cheaper around here. Now my car is totaled, I'm trapped without any way to call for help. And you want me to go into that creepy forest to inspect a bizarre light? You think we want to be here? Betty asked. Johnny's just trying to find us a way out or a way to survive. We already tried running, but the corpses have surrounded the roads. We tried hiding in the church, but they ended up breaking down the door. This is our last option. If this fails... She didn't need to finish the sentiment. 
we all understood what she meant. My stomach was growling from not having eaten all day and I felt tired and weak. I ignored all of it and immediately started walking towards the edge of the woods. After a few moments, I heard their footsteps close behind me. As we got closer to the black sun, the forest changed from the idyllic firs, junipers, and white pine of the forest into a monstrous wasteland to something out of a nightmare. The needles of the evergreens and the decomposing leaves and dark soil of the ground transformed into a thick, scaly covering. I shone my light, kneeling close to it. To my horror, I saw what looked like blood vessels passing through, expanding and contracting slightly as some unseen heart pumped black fluid into the destroyed earth. The crust itself looked dark red, and it covered everything on the ground. I tried knocking on the crust with my knuckles. It felt slightly sticky and as hard as concrete. The trees and plants had also changed. The bark of the trees had turned a pale, ghostly white. Their leaves and needles had fallen off, and the branches stood like skeletal arms, stretching upwards to the sky. Thick rivulets of black fluid dripped from the bark and branches of all the trees. The ferns and pricker bushes and other small plants had also turned white, as pale as writhing maggots. Small drops of the black fluid fell from the changed leaves of the ferns and shrubs dripping onto the ground. This reminds me of Kudzu in a way, Freddy said standing behind my wife and me. His eyes were wide and he kept gazing around uncertainly. He didn't look at us though he constantly glanced back towards Main Street, as if thinking about booking it and leaving us alone. What's Kudzu? My wife asked, still as curious as ever. It's a plant from Asia. It grows in the south a lot and it takes over entire areas. It's like a vine that climbs everything and suffocates all the other plants, he said. This looks a little different than that, I said sarcastically. I saw Freddy's knuckles turn white from gripping the mace canister as a stick snapped in the distance. He was terrified and it would likely only take the smallest thing to send him running. I knew exactly how he felt. The light from the black sun became so bright as we walked forwards that I no longer needed my phone. Trying to conserve the battery, I turned the flashlight off and put it away, seeing Betty doing the same. Fred followed behind us, hesitant. As we got closer to the source of the mystery, his anxiety seemed to grow. You know what they say about stragglers, Freddy? I asked, trying to break the grim mood. He shook his head. And they get eaten first. After that, his pace quickened and he stuck close to us. I hadn't seen a single animal yet or heard a cricket or a bird. There were no bats flying around the dead and bleeding trees. No owls hooting in the distance or mosquitoes swarming around us. I wondered where the animals had gone. Most likely, I thought to myself they had fled, unlike me. It seemed to me that they were the smart ones in this decision. As if conjured by the thought, I saw movement below a thick cluster of ferns. I put my hand up, the universal signal for stop. My wife and Freddy paused without a word. 
I got on my knees, taking my phone back out and turning the light on. It shone under the leaves. I saw a possum barely clinging to life. Surrounding it were tiny creatures. There weren't like any life form that I had ever seen on earth. Where the light fell on them, they started chittering, excitedly raising their voices and turning their tiny faces towards me. They were no bigger than a Barbie doll, but with dozens of them in a pack, they had apparently taken down an animal much larger than themselves. They had gray, chitinous shells with glowing white eyes. Sharp, crab-like pinchers covered in fresh blood clicked open and closed rapidly. Their tiny legs curved outwards, ending in razor-like feet. Their bow-legged gait made them waver from side to side as they ran around the possum, turning their tiny heads towards me from time to time and clicking their small mouths. The possum was nearly dead, and it didn't even try to run or fight. It languidly raised a paw or its head, and then the attack would begin again. The light in its eyes had gone out. Dozens of deep gashes showed all over its body. Its ragged breathing would stop for a few seconds and then start again once one of the tiny creatures shoved its claws inside, opening a tiny mouth filled with fangs to suck the blood that poured out. I quickly backed away. Betty had seen it too and a look of horror crossed across her face. What are those things? she asked. I have no idea, I said. Freddy didn't seem the least bit interested in seeing the creatures or the dying possum. He had stayed back a few feet, constantly checking all directions as if expecting an ambush. Without a word, I kept walking, not wanting to see such a horrible and sad scene. I considered sending a bullet in the possum's head to put it out of its misery. I looked over at Betty, who always loved animals, and noticed a tear rolling down her cheek. I realized that I could see something through the pale and skeletal trees. It looked like a clearing, and in the center I could just barely make out a huge orb, floating and spinning over the crusted red ground. An intense, purplish-black light swirled and jumped inside of it, sending out bolts of lightning into the surrounding field. Yet there was no sound, no thunder or crashing of branches. I pointed and Betty raised her head, her mouth agape in wonder. Freddy apparently had already seen it. All the color had drained from his face and I thought for a moment that he might faint. I think we're near, I said. That must be the black sun. As I walked out into the clearing, I felt eyes on me. I thought that I caught glimpses of white eyes behind the dead trees and bushes, but whenever I turned to look, they were gone. Nevertheless, I quickly realized that we weren't alone in the clearing. It extended for nearly a quarter mile with the black sun directly in the middle. Thick black blood vessels as wide as a man pulsed all around my feet. Thousands of them embedded into the dark red crust of the earth. And as my eyes adjusted to the intense black light, I realized more of the townspeople were here, tortured and dying. It looked like we had found the missing. They were impaled on sharpened sticks ten feet tall that surrounded the black sun in a circle. They loomed over me, choking or pleading. I saw men, women, and children. The one nearest to me, an old woman still wearing the tattered rag of her clothes, raised her head and looked down at me, 
her eyes white and empty. Get out while you still can, she said, coughing up blood that dribbled down her chin. The stake had been driven below her legs and the sharp end rose out of her left shoulder. He's mad. He's mad. Oh God, he's killed us all. We should have done something. We should have tried. Her eyelids started fluttering and she began to shake and seize on the stake. Within seconds, she had passed, her head falling down limply, still staring at me, her eerie white eyes still open. I hadn't noticed before, but I saw the black, pulsating blood vessels extended to each one of the victims. They had crawled up the stakes and wrapped around the feet and legs of each person. I couldn't see the bottom of their bodies, but I saw that these nightmarish arteries had eaten holes inside each of the bodies. They seemed to suck on their blood, draining the victims as they died. And you still think we should have come here, Johnny? Freddy asked in my ear. Do me a favor, please. If we get captured, just put one right in my head. I don't want to end up like that. He motioned to the old woman who still stared blankly down at us, looking at me like some demented scarecrow. I didn't answer, gazing around the hundreds of bodies that surrounded the black sun like these spokes on a wheel. Standing next to the orb, I saw what looked to be a little boy, no older than nine or ten, but he was transformed, no longer human. His skin looked translucent, black veins and arteries stood out in his neck and face, and his eyes were white like the others and yet different. They weren't the dull, cataract white of a corpse, but shone with their own inner luminosity, like twin stars floating in the void. My name is Kindred, the boy said smiling. I think you've arrived just in time. The black sun is almost done feeding for now and it'll send out its call in a moment. I congratulate you on making it so far. The others didn't do so well. The black sun has a corrupting influence, let's say. His grin widened at this. But it doesn't seem to affect you three as much. Now, why do you think that is? None of us answered him. I gripped the gun tightly, feeling my finger on the trigger. It gave me a sense of power and relief, even though I didn't know if it would have any effect on such a creature. Betty was the first to speak, stepping forward. She didn't stutter or tremble as she stared into the boy's eyes. Do you live here? Where's your family? She asked. The boy's smile seemed to widen further, stretching inhumanly across his small face. Oh, my family's dead, he said. Thank thee, Lord Lucifer, for small favors. My father was a terrible man. He used to take his anger out on me physically, and one day he went too far and he killed me. My mother covered it up. But I was offered a way to return the favor. Lucifer came to me in a vision as I died at the bottom of the stairs, my neck broken, paralyzed from the fall. He told me that if I gave him my soul that I could come back in power and glory. Those who hurt me would fall first. The neighbors and congregation that had ignored my pleas for help would suffer also and the church, full of hypocrites and liars, would become a testament to my becoming and his power. 
My father, a police officer who hoped to cover up my death, was the first to go. When the black sun appeared in the forest, it began to twist their minds. His mind, already damaged, was easy to push over the edge. Lucifer convinced him to end his own life, and you probably saw him back there in his car in town. As the black sun grew in power, it brought the dead back to life, an army for me to use in my becoming. Some of the townspeople tried to hide in the church, but the black sun put them to sleep, and I came through and ended them one by one in the pews. Now it expands and its power grows. The dead rise further and further away. Soon all the corpses in this town will follow my command except for, of course, those needed to feed the black sun. These puppets on the stakes. He motioned to the hundreds of bodies. And then he closed his eyes and the black sun began to grow. Its orb grew and the dark silent lightning began to strike the impaled bodies and trees with a feverish intensity. I had to turn my head away, but I still saw the branching lightning strikes even through my closed eyes. Kindred didn't flinch, but instead seemed to feed off the energy that it put out. His smile grew wider and his white eyes seemed to burn with an inner light. It was as if I could see a fire of white flames inside his head, or perhaps a sun. We've had to feed it, he said, and after it's fed, it sleeps but its slumber shortens with every cycle, and the energy it puts out grows. Every time it awakens, it brings back the dead in an ever-widening circle. Soon, we'll have an army of fearless soldiers, soldiers who obey every command regardless of the danger of death. For what do they have to fear? I saw corpses walking out of the forest, forming a circle around the black sun. The woman with the black matted hair and white eyes that I had seen earlier stood next to Kindred. She put her hand on his shoulder and he looked up at her fondly. My mother. She's much more useful than death. She never could stand up to my father, but everything happens for a reason. He said this last part wistfully, a slight smile returning to his boyish, mutated face. And then the black sun began to make a shrill noise, an ear-splitting siren-like sound that made me back up instinctively. I realized that what we had heard in the town was not a siren at all, but the call of this satanic orb, spinning deep within the forest. A smell like ozone filled the clearing, mixing with the rotting odor of the dead. Kindred didn't seem to mind the noise or the smells. His face had returned to the same placid expression the state that it had been in when I first saw him. The siren call died down much faster this time and soon, the forest had returned to silence. For a moment we stared at each other, his burning white eyes meeting mine. And then he turned away, giving an apathetic wave in our direction. Kill them all, he said. Feed them to the sun. As soon as he had turned, I raised the pistol and fired. The first shot went low and it caught him in the knee. He cried out, a very human sound, falling onto the crusted red ground. The army of undead that he had summoned rushed forward towards us. I pulled out the knife and I threw it to Freddy. You better be ready, I said quickly and then they were on us. I shot the black-haired woman in the head, the one that Kindred had called his mother and she fell backwards thick, clotted blood exploding out of the back of her head. Freddy stabbed with the knife, hitting a tall man in the eye, 
With a sickening sound, he pulled it out, sending droplets of red scattering in all directions. But a dozen hands grabbed him, pulling down as he screamed for help. I shot the last few rounds into those nearest, but for each one I killed, another three would swarm in and take their place. I tried to run forward towards Kindred, but hands grabbed me from all directions. The strength of those hands quickly stopped me in my tracks. In the chaos, Betty had escaped, crawling under their grasping hands and through decomposing skeletal legs. They were focused on us, those with the weapons, and she used the opportunity to run. She sprinted towards Kindred, who was healing quickly. The blood had already stopped pouring from the bullet wound in his leg, and he was slowly rising to his feet, scowling and furious. In horror, I watched her as she tackled a small body and they both went flying into the black sun. For a moment, nothing had happened. They seemed suspended on the surface, defying gravity. Betty's mouth, an O of surprise. Kindred's a look of pure hatred. And then there was an explosion of light and heat and a gateway opened in front of her eyes. On the other side, I saw a vast, terrifying landscape. Rocky cliffs extended up to the sky, Blood-red clouds rained fire and lava down on the dead rocks below. Thousands of people swarmed across the barren landscape, burning, screaming, their skin melting off and their hair on fire. But as soon as they had fallen and stopped moving, they would heal in a matter of seconds, and then it would start again and they would rise, trying to escape the fire. And then the portal started to close, narrowing and shrinking, I screamed for my wife, telling her to get out of there to run, but my words caught on my throat and soon, it had shrunk to a pinpoint of violent purplish light. And seconds later it was gone, and the corpses holding me fell limply to the ground, landing on their faces and backs, their eyes shutting. I was alone with Freddy, horrified and screaming for my wife, but in my heart I knew that I would never see her again. The black sun had taken her as it had taken the lives of so many others. I cursed Kindred, cursed the sun, and the townspeople and his father. Surrounded by hundreds of rotting corpses, we started the long walk back to town in silence, my tears feeling cold on my cheeks. Thank you all so much for listening to this week's episode. I hope that you enjoyed it. Wherever you may be in the world, I hope that you're staying safe and sound. And as always, stay creepy. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.